hot off the press, Piers. The Piers Project has teamed up with our dear friend and renowned not-for-profit organisation, Little Dreamers Australia, to produce a brand spanking new podcast. If you've ever wished there was a subject called How to Handle Your Money 101, this is it. The Money Matters podcast is here to demystify the world of money and help young carers take control of their money, one transaction at a time. Tune into the Money Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or just head straight to the link in this episode's description. Now let's get into this episode. This is the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by The Peers Project. Hello, peers. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akidanor, founder of The Peers Project, millennial entrepreneur, world traveler, podcast expert, and forever your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite inspiring millennial entrepreneurs from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer-to-peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, peers, and welcome to another episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. We're feeling particularly empathetic today, and not because we've consumed any Brene Brown content. It's actually the result of my recent conversation with millennial entrepreneur Sandra Rocco. Sandra is a Filipino-American who grew up in New Jersey, consumed by food and sports, the son of two immigrant parents, Sandra had a keen sense of otherness, but this feeling of difference wasn't a source of pain. Instead, it altered his curiosity towards the vibrancy around him. Fast forward a few short years, Sandra's curiosity for culture shape-shifted itself into the form of Sanzo, the first Asian-inspired sparkling beverage company, with an array of flavours and one thesis to bridge cultures. In this episode, Sandro shares how he navigates different cultural identities while reminding us of the priceless importance of empathy in business. For those of you who haven't yet, make sure to take a screenshot of this episode right now, post it to your Instagram story and tag us at The Peers Project so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these incredible millennial entrepreneurs. Okay, without further ado, here is my conversation with the awesome... Sandro Rocco. Sandro, welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show today. Thanks so much. It's uh, it's awesome to be on. Thanks for having me. Of course. You know, you and I connected recently through a mutual friend of ours and past podcast guest, and that's Kim Pham. And, you know, when I looked into you and all the amazing work that you're doing in the food and beverage and business space, I knew I had to have you come in the show. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Of course, Kim is a dear friend at this point in the business. And we've definitely, as you might imagine, given the similarities of our products, um, you know, share a lot, trade a lot of notes. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. And look, so I guess for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself. 
Sure thing. Uh, so first off, again, thank you so much for having me. I'm Sandra Rocco. I'm the founder of Sanzo, and Sanzo is the first Asian-inspired sparkling water. Uh, so we use real fruit plus no added sugars, artificial or quote-unquote natural flavors, or any other additives in our in our drinks. Um, we launched in late Ju- sorry in mid July. Uh, 2019. So we actually just had our first year anniversary uh, about two weeks ago. And yeah, we're based in New York City. Although obviously with um, with the pandemic, everything's kind of where you're based out of is kind of a liquid, con- it's a very fluid concept right now. <laughs> so true. So true. And I cannot wait yeah, to dive deeper into into the business and, and the last year and, and before that even. But before we do I'd like to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing, and that is, where did you grow up and how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and your career so far? So my my, my parents immigrated from the Philippines to New York City in the 1980s, Um, and then I was born in Queens, but never really spent much time there. I was actually born in central New Jersey, and it was in a very... It's interesting in the in, in the late '80s to early '90s, and even for the I'd say for most of my childhood, you know, being Asian American in this in this town, we were definitely among the first, you know, and kind of get into to, to that if you like. But it's interesting that like I don't know that you know, and obviously, and I would say go, especially now with the coronavirus, there's been a lot of you know anti Asian and anti Asian American um, sentiment. I personally, whether it's through my own just choice on how I viewed the world or just having selective memory, can't say I fully like felt that kind of ostracism. A sense of othering, sure, um, definitely you felt it. You know, uh, uh, the town that I grew up in was heavily Polish American, Irish American, and Italian American, and, and and so there, you know, so obviously there's a sense of otherness. But I just we always were raised with a sense of like. Of, of of like integrating within the community that we were in. So you know, even when I t- even when I think now about um, you know the dishes that I grew up with, like what I still crave, you know, like, like a home cooked meal, it actually is not much in the way of Filipino dishes. I love them, but like if you ask me like the number one dish that I crave, it's like my mom's like chicken parm or her pot roast um, that she made for us growing up, which are like ultimately very like quote unquote American dishes and. I mean, I'm sure there's a crazy through line um, between that and starting a beverage that, like, while it has its inspirations, is still like a sparkling water that is, you know, got a pretty big, you know, like uptick in just the general American, you know, palate. But yeah, I grew up in central New Jersey uh, to two Filipino immigrants. <laughs> I love that. And I think, you know, I just love asking that question because I think it just does tell, it lends so much to us what you're doing now, who you've become, you know, your journey to get there and all that. You know, talk to us a little bit about Sandro, the early years, you know, as a kid, what did you love to do? Was it, you know, going out and playing footy or being outside or was it more kind of staying inside with your video games? Like, talk to us a little bit about that. Sure, sure. Um, so I played, I grew up, I was the youngest of three boys and all three of us were, we were quite heavily involved in sports. For your listeners who are not able to to watch the fact that we're having a video conversation, my background is just just decked with baseball and basketball posters. This is actually my mom's workspace. Um, so I guess I go to show you how much of a, of, a, of a sports family we are. But yeah, I think, I mean, growing up, it was a combination of sports and then 
frankly, video, you know, quite a bit of video games. I wasn't the, even though I played a lot of sports, I wasn't the healthiest kid, but yeah, it, it was basketball. I'll say football as the rest of the world knows it, soccer as Americans call it and baseball. And then, yeah, just uh, most things are all, frankly, revolved around that. And I guess eating, uh, my parents did teach us quite well, I think, like how to eat and appreciate other cultures, cuisines. I mean, again, like right around our hometown, it's actually a very cult, a very diverse set of like populations in differing towns. So like, like I said, my town is specifically heavily Polish, Irish, and Italian American, but one town over heading south, heavily Portuguese, one town east, heavily uh, Puerto Rican and Dominican. And so, like, we just grew up eating a lot of different foods. So, like, I don't know if that's, like, a bit of a segue at all, I don't know if, if, if it matters. But, like, basically, my food was, or my, my world was sports and food. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love it. And I love that, it, isn't it so interesting that you kind of grew up next to all these towns with such kind of a mixed kind of cultural heritage and all of that? You know, I guess how do you think that played a role? You know, I think, you know, as you said, you always kind of do feel different, but you never felt, you know, you never felt, I guess, super oppressed or anything like that. You know, how do you think that lended to how you saw the world at that time when you were growing up? And even, I guess, then heading into, you know, school, university and whatnot, college? Yeah, I mean, again, for for better or worse, like we did, the biggest thing that, I guess I learned growing up was just how to, and it maybe it's just the case with many or a lot of kids, but like you just kind of try to fit in. And, you know, for me, like, especially sports was a way to do that, right? If you played on sports teams, you already had a natural, you know, set of friends you could at least talk to at, you know, the lunch table or, you know, just to do, do, do things with after school. Ultimately, you know, like even when I, it's interesting, like even when I looked though at like the high school friends that I had, like the biggest thing we almost like we basically called ourselves like a United Colors of, Be- of Benetton ad because we literally had just like such like representation or rather like or, like the United Nations even like we just had such rep- like representation across like a bunch of different cultures and it was kind of on accident like we weren't just like hey I need like a so and so friend it's just kind of how we all came together and I'll say it was interesting so in high school went had a very diverse like uh is that like group of friends and just general like exposure to things it was actually in college that i'll say culture i want to say culture took a step back but it definitely felt different so i went to a very uh like a, a, a private university that just i'll just say it was very white and frankly had to learn like if anything that's where i really learned how had to learn how to like fit in not again like not a sense of ostracism but just like I like in order to fit in, you need to like either get into these certain clubs where there is definitely like a feeling of a certain type of like, I'll say like in crowd. And so I think one of the biggest things that I've just learned for better or worse, and frankly, I'm now, especially as an adult, um, I guess trying to reclaim a little bit or trying to learn a little bit more about who I want to be and how I identify with. But I guess like the biggest thing that I've learned, uh, learned in my childhood was just kind of how to be a chameleon, you know, like adapt to whatever situation that I was in and be whatever I needed to be. And in a way, like it's, it, it, it's even interesting when I say that because it makes, it almost makes it sound like I never was who I wanted to be. And it never felt that way. Like it just felt like, Oh, like I want to be liked or I want to relate 
to whomever that I'm with. Like I want to show like in, in a way for me, it's almost like a level of empathy. If I can figure out a way that I can level with anyone in a room. And even to this day, you know, like I, I hold certain, uh, I guess I call them like relatively progressive political beliefs, but uh, you know, even within my friend set have quite a few friends who are, who, who, you know, who, who are maybe on the more conservative end of the spectrum. And I enjoy the conversations that we have and enjoy just, like, I guess it's our differences of opinions and just being able to, like, still hold, like, a, a certain set of, like, I think, like, core values, but, like, express differently. And I just, like, have always, I think, like, valued being around people who are different, I guess, than, than I might naturally be. And, and, and I think it, it's interesting that we've kind of very quickly deep dove into a bit of, like, a psychological study, but, like, I think in a nutshell, that's kind of how I enjoy life is just being around a bunch of different minded folks and maybe that's just the product of like how I was, you know, brought up. It was just to be kind of amenable and like, uh, I guess, empathetic to, 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 to different populations, I guess. <laughs> I love it. I find it so fascinating. I guess, what advice would you give to our peers out there listening around becoming adaptable or malleable or whichever way you said it so well, amendable? You know, what advice would you give on that? It's really tough because especially today, I'm even going through, okay, how amenable should I be versus how much should I, you know, you know, stick my foot down on, you know, X. And I guess what I've come to is, and it kind of forms a bit of a core thesis of, frankly, like Sanzo, like the brand that I've built and, or that I'm building and want to continue to build. And like, really, one of the cruxes of it is like this idea of bridging cultures, like our mission, the, the mission of the, of the brand is to bridge cultures um, through introducing people to global flavors. Like that's the general, that, 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 that's kind of it. And when I think about how bridges get built in, 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 in culture, it's like, you really, like, there's, there's, there's like an element of like building your tribe, which is obviously like getting like-minded folks around and, you know, like go like, you know, marching with that. And I think there's certainly an element to that, that I've really, really enjoyed with building this brand. But I do think that ultimately, and this ends up like, there's no way in 2020 you can, I guess, start to have these conversations without it getting a bit political, but there's no way I don't think you can build coalitions without reaching out to folks who are, you know, different. And, and honestly, it doesn't need to be like, and, and, and what I'm very, I guess, careful of, especially in America, is like, I think a lot of folks, when I say bridging cultures, it means like, oh, like, cool, you want to appeal to Asian people and white people. And I'm like, no, 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 that's like everyone. And that's going to be really complicated and convoluted. And we're, and we're definitely, I, I am definitely not always going to get it right. But I do think that that as a mission is what will be, as I'm, brand, as I'm building a brand, you know, I think that's what's going to keep us lasting for you know, like well beyond I'm, you know, either like on this earth or associated, you know, with this brand. And it's like, and, and I think if, if anything, it's, I, it's not really advice, but it's just kind of who I've wanted to be. And that's like, I've always wanted to be able to empathize with anyone in whatever position that they're in. And it could be, you know, like someone who may be like, like ostracized culturally, but just try to understand that there's a personal level to all of that, I mean, it's like kind of crazy. Like, we're never thought I'd invoke this name on a podcast, but like, you know, in just the last 24 hours, we've seen Kanye West have like a massive, 
you know, mental health breakdown as he's, you know, attempting to run for president. Obviously he has his own issues, but there's obviously also a mental health aspect that goes with what he's done and um, what a lot of folks in the spotlight get exposed to, you know, by just being in the spotlight. But from someone who's like on that end, someone who's like super marginalized, impoverished, coming from uh, a background that like I personally can't fully appreciate. I mean, my parents, I was super fortunate that they, you know, like immigrated to this country and were able to provide for me really well for myself and my brothers really well. It's just, again, it's not like a piece of advice, but it's just like, I've always sought to try to empathize with as many people as I possibly can. Cause I, I just, I care about understanding people where they are. I think it's just how you build connections. And so I'd say if someone cares about that, if that is their own personal core value, I do think it's important to kind of step out of what you're, the feeds and the digests that you're in on a daily basis, because they're algorithmically driven to only give you kind of like what you want or like what you already kind of subscribe to. And it takes, I think, a very active mindset and, and to, 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 to constantly step out of that. So interesting and so well said. Awesome. So I want to dive a bit deeper into kind of your time, I guess, at college and then past that. you So you studied um, chemical engineering, I think a minor in business. You know, you kind of alluded to the fact that your college days were really that, uh, that time where you had to Learn, you, you felt like you kind of stuck out a little bit and you had to learn to be um, amendable and whatnot. I guess then heading into, you know, the corporate world, you know, what was that time like for you? I saw that you, you headed into engineering and then moved on to JP Morgan. You know, talk to us about that time and, and if, you know, trying to fit in or feeling like you needed to be amendable was still a big thing for you then. Sure. I mean, the first three years, so my first three years out of university, uh, worked at a nuclear power plant about two hours, about an hour, sorry, about an hour and a half west of Philadelphia. Which, if anyone if you're, of your listeners has been even like an hour west of Philadelphia, you know that it gets pretty rural pretty quickly. You know, most of my coworkers graduating right out of university were already engaged or married or soon to be so, buying homes, hobbies included hunting or fishing or things like that, that I just thought were like kind of interesting, but just were not at all my thing. You know, on weekends, it would be kind of hilarious how we kind of recap, sorry, we, we, on, on Monday mornings, we'd recap what happened over the weekend. And they would say, you know, did some housework around the home or took was you know taking care of a uh, child and i was like oh i drove up two hours to new york city to hang out with my friends and basically just got you know it was just like an idiot um roaming around you know the lower east side at four o'clock in the morning um <laughs> and so you know it was it was t- I, I will say that was actually a very tough transition for me because i just did not realize i never lived a life quite that removed from like a major like urban center or just like just that just like yeah like outside of things that i was you know accustomed to i tried but i will say it was a very difficult three years and i was i think i got some really good lessons frankly about like humility and i guess again like empathy just understanding that people live i think especially in new york city uh, a lot of folks who just get, kind of live in or are around there their entire lives or careers can kind of get fixated. Like I get into this way too, where you can kind of be in the in the New York City bubble, where um, you know you think the world revolves just around you, or that everyone kind of should, does think or should think in that way. And so, like having 
that experience, like for three years out of my life, I think has given me a good voice in my head to be like, no, there's other ways that people live, other values that people, other things that people value. Um, and doesn't make you, it doesn't make it any worse. It doesn't necessarily make it any better, but also doesn't make it any worse. It just, it just is it's just different. And it's interesting because did like the complete 180, you know, when I worked at JP Morgan for two years on like, you know, a big bank trading floor and yeah, you know, some of the personalities, you know, can resemble personalities you might see in television shows or in movies. I would argue for the most part, it actually doesn't, but yeah, I mean, a very fast, like, like you're, you're talking about a relatively slow pace of a nuclear power plant, which is, I say, it's a good thing that it's slow paced. You do not want a nuclear power plant to be a fast paced environment to, you know, a trading floor, which, you know, things move by the second and that's kind of the, the excitement of it. And it was very exciting. That was actually a bit more up my speed. It ultimately wasn't the exact career that I wanted to stay with, but definitely like, I feel like I spent a lot of my twenties just kind of exploring a bunch of different careers, personality sets. And like looking back on it, it's just kind of fascinating um, how people can start to really fill in the archetypes that I guess like we ascribe um, to, to a degree. But yeah, I, I really haven't, even with the struggles, I've really enjoyed the progression that my career has taken me on. So let's dive a bit deeper. That was so fascinating. Let's dive a bit deeper into, I guess, then that, I think it's that final year or that final six months when you were still at JP Morgan and you started your first business. So, you know, I, I think it was called... Oh, no, I don't remember, but I do know that you moved on to Bombfell um, shortly after. So talk to us a little bit about what that initial business was um, and why you decided to kind of close up shop after after five, six months and head on to Bombfell. Sure. So I had several uh, – so the name of the business was DAP, uh, D-A-P-P, <laughs> there you uh, go. kind of like a take on Dapper. So essentially it was – it was the it was my own personal predecessor to Bombfell. So Bombfell, the company that I joined and worked at for five years, um, an online personal styling service for men, twice venture backed. You know, basically men could go online, fill out an online profile about themselves, and then through the combination of machine learning and the touch of a personal stylist, um, you know, would send you clothes that you love to your door, and you could basically keep what like you know, keep what you wanted, but then you could send the rest back, and it was all you know covered under this business model. My very first. You know, so DAP was essentially that, but a more like MVP version of it. So was basically, so I had friends who were bankers and consultants, and who you know for four days out of a week would be kind of going crazy, and so over the weekends just like you know didn't want to do anything. So I figured, hey, these folks have disposable income and you know need ways to spend it, but shopping might be uh, felt like a pretty time consuming thing. So I would literally take like a suitcase or like a duffel bag and show up to their door with clothes and basically whatever they wanted to keep, they would, you know, Venmo me or just like, however, like mobile pay me for them for, for the, for the items and whatever they didn't want, I would literally just take it back to the store. As you might imagine, not a very great business model to buy clothes at retail and then sell them at retail for no markup, but it was a way to try to figure out like, is there something there? Ultimately tried a bunch of different like I was tinkering around with a bunch of different ideas for business models. But the biggest thing that hit me was taking on any kind of inventory risk was just not something that I felt like I was in a position to really do. And why I decided to join Bonfell was ultimately it felt like they had already answered some of these questions and turned it into a product. And I had I just I I had actually had this problem for like 
five years where I wanted to explore different like entrepreneurial concepts, like different businesses and different business models, but I don't think I ever really had the right frameworks and was just kind of scared at that point to take the leap and kind of felt like I could do this, lose a lot of money really quickly and not have learned the lessons that I wanted to. And so ultimately, fortunately, Bombfell was, you know, they had just been at it. Like they, they finished their seed, their seed funding. We're starting to get a bit of traction and they were looking for someone basically who was willing to get their hands dirty. And so I took a 75% pay cut to, cause I just thought the learning experience would have been really well worth it. I also frankly believe that it was going to be, you know, really like the next big thing and just learned, just learned so much and really learned about entrepreneurship there. I mean, in many ways that was my, you could call it my MBA. I frankly also call it my university. <laughs> um, I actually really learned about business then. And so, yeah, it was a great, great experience that I think in many ways has helped me in starting, you know, this, this current business. Mm. I find it fascinating how, you know, it was all kind of traditional, traditional, you know, you did the workout for three years in the countryside, whatever it was, and then it was more into the city and, and, you know, you were, you're at a big firm and then boom, you know, comes this like startup, you know, where did, you know, so many of us have this kind of traditional, I mean, it's very normal, that traditional trajectory kind of thing. Okay, great. I'll go to a good university. I'll get a good job and all of that. You know, for you, when did it start to kind of marinate? You, you said kind of for five years, you were thinking about, the entrepreneurial path, like talk to us about that mindset there. You know, what pain were you experiencing by being in corporate and not being out there, maybe getting your hands dirty? Talk to us about that. Sure. So I had had a great experience at university that I think proved to be like a seed experience for the startup world or for just knowing that this is kind of what I'm actually destined to do. So in college, um, and it may not sound like this, but I was, I was the editor-in-chief of our um, newspaper, and got to do it at a pretty young age. Like I was a sophomore when I was named co-editor-in-chief. And basically, at the time, we'd had a lot of staff turnover, not a very good pipeline. The actual product of the college newspaper was like very, was like relatively poor, and we weren't monetizing well. So essentially, we weren't selling ads. The ads that we were selling didn't have great collections. And so my co-editor-in-chief and I, we really approached it as hey, we are actually like the co-CEOs of a business whose product happens to be a college newspaper. And when we kind of, when we looked at it through that lens, I mean, everything, like we obviously, our our main focus was obviously on putting together, putting out a better product. So the actual journalism, um, we were pretty committed to. And fortunately, he, he and I and the rest of the editorial board that we assembled, it was just kind of like a really good perfect storm of folks who had had good training in high school and so like even though we were all pretty young in in university we had just come from high schools that had just like invested in for whatever reason <laughs> high school journalism and so we were able to get the product up to a pretty good point and then we started figuring out okay how can we monetize how can we sell different ad products um, one of the things that we came up with was producing a quarterly like special edition magazine and our school was a very big basketball school um and so was the surrounding area so we figured out also hey we could actually sell 
ads for way more expensive because it's in glossy print. Um, so we opened up a new like advertiser set, and then we were starting to figure out like, okay, cool, like let's you know, and, so, and, w- and within that, I mean, he was a business major, I was minoring in business, and so we figured, okay, like let's you know do a proper P and L, build this thing out properly, and it was just eye opening. This idea of taking what what was a student activity, but applying like an entrepreneur's mindset to it. And our team just had such a like vivacity. Like we were literally working, like we, we were pulling all nighters, you know, and it wasn't, for, and it wasn't for school. Like it was for the newspaper. And that was like the real seedling of, oh my gosh, like it could be so interesting. You know, it, it, it's so interesting. At the time I didn't even properly, it, it's like, I'm, I'm such an idiot. Like I didn't even internalize the right lesson. I internalized, oh, it'd be really great to run a company. It'd be really great to be like a CEO. Never, it still took me, frankly, until you know, really like entertaining Bombfell and just like the startup ecosystem to really entertain the idea of like, oh, you could start a business. Like you could be at it, you could be there from its inception, build the business model and the whole infrastructure around it. Like it's just I'm such an idiot. Like it took me, like I'm really just, it, it takes me just such a, uh, like several like hits on the head um, to actually internalize the real lesson that's supposed to be, to, to supposed to be had. But you know, that was in my sophomore year of, um, of college. And it just, it just always stuck with me. The experiences that I had, the team that we were able to build, the business, frankly, that we were able to build and also the impact that we were able to have on our university. I mean, we had, you know, especially it isn't. We've done a lot of self-reflection, you know, with with the George, with the George Floyd killings and all that's been going on with the Black Lives Matter movement. And looking at past publications, we were on that like in two thousand six and two thousand seven in a in, at a school like Villanova, which you know had and still has, frankly, its own issues with race. And I'm like, oh, like we were like there's a there's a real. Yeah, it's in some ways, and I and I don't want to get too overconfident because there's obviously issues that I have and things that I'm trying to correct for as an entrepreneur and a founder. But like, it's like becoming more clear to me that like those like that specific experience was meant to help incubate eventually starting my own business. So uh, I, that's definitely the the, the 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 primary driver. And then when I got into corporate, you know, having doing that for five years, nothing really, uh, nothing just hit that exactly. Like I was searching for it, but it's never fully hit that. And so that's where I kind of started going down this path. Mm, I love it. So let's talk about Sanzo. So you started, I think it was in late 2018. Talk to us about, you know, where the idea for Sanzo came about, you know, and what were those first few steps you took to get it off the ground? Sure. So the original idea I had around mid 2018. So, to your, I mean, your point, you're right. We, we eventually, like, the first like beta, if you will, um, launched in you know, later that year. But essentially, at the time, you had multiple things going on. Crazy Rich Asians was the number one film at the box office in the U.S. Has since become the sixth highest grossing romantic comedy in United States history. Korean pop, K-pop music was just going was on a fever pitch in the U.S. You also had just in the world of like food specifically, a lot of pretty prominent Asian and Asian American restaurateurs just, you know, getting, you know, national press coverage. You started really seeing not just Asian Americans, but like, just like other populations just really getting on board with this kind of cultural wave that was happening. And yet it felt like I could just see in my own world that like there was nothing there on beverages. Like it just, when I walked into certain markets, 
the closest thing was matcha, but most of the brand owners, at least in the U.S., just didn't really have that kind of culture bridging mentality. It was very much like just you know millennial branded mindset, which is I have no problem with, but like weren't really going for a deeper level of cultural exploration, and so it just kind of felt like okay, what can we do here? And in, and at the and at Bonfell's offices, you know, we were just stocked with different brands of sparkling water. LaCroix was going crazy um, in the United States. And so, you know, we, it was just kind of like a natural playground. How I started was really just in my, uh, in my apartment kitchen, literally had a Google sheet with like a cook's um, like weighing scale and like cans of unflavored seltzer water and then purees that I ordered from Amazon or other third-party marketplaces and just started basically figuring out, okay, well, what tastes good and then what are the unit cogs and like, does this thing even work? And and then also talking to other um, food and beverage entrepreneurs, just, net, just basically trading. It's like uh, my, the thing that I could bring was I had been running like millions of dollars in ads on like Instagram and Facebook, email marketing, po- like advertising on po- on podcasts, things of that ilk, and so I could basically trade digital or like e-commerce knowledge to CPG founders who you know this space actually isn't like there's still a lot to be uh, learned among most CPG entrepreneurs about e-commerce and digital marketing. So, you know, could easily trade that information for distribution contacts, supplier contacts, things like, things like that. And they're just kind of like, I guess, like off to the races. (laughs) I love that. So talk to us a little bit about the early challenges you face. You know, you said that when you were at Bonfield, it felt like your MBA, your first kind of real go at business, but you know, in this, I guess, second or your first, you're the one on your own, Sandro, you know, what, what were some of those early challenges? You know, did you ever struggle at the beginning? Talk to us about that. Sure. I mean, the biggest thing, especially in, in something like, like a beverage versus a more, I'll say more naturally, a product that more naturally lends itself to being direct consumer is that in beverages, you really have to sell it wholesale. So it means going into local markets, local eateries, trying to sell to them, learning about distribution. So like getting a distributor and that is just not information that you can find on Google, you can just Google search. You just really can't. There are no, there aren't meant, there aren't as many medium essays or, you know, twit like Twitter influencers really diving into that world. It's mostly in pure play, um, direct consumer. And so, you know, the struggles really was just looking like an idiot in front of independent market buyers when they would ask for certain levels of pricing or, like sell sheets and stuff like that. And it's just like, okay, you take your licks, Google what this is, like Google what a sell sheet is. And like, oh, okay, that's what it is. Now I have to produce that and come back. And then certainly the other element of it is, is capitalization. So, you know, doing production runs for anything in physical goods, especially beverages, it's just not cheap. And the minimum and the minimums that folks require are not usually the smallest. And so there's definitely a leap of faith that any entrepreneur has to take with, green lighting, you know, like a five or $10,000, you know, production run, which, you know, that was, that's a big decision. You know, if you're, if you're, especially if you're self-financing it, which I did in the very early days, you know, the very first run I did was like of the, of the, of, of what you, of what folks see now in market of the cans was 3,890 cans of C, which is our flagship, you know, like kind of like a lime flavored sparkling water. And, 
to me, I mean, now that's not that much, but like back then I'm like, wow, I have to sell 3,890 cans of this product. Also, this production run has to go well. So like this thing has to like taste good. If it doesn't taste good, then I'm ditching all that product. And also like, am I going to be able to sell all of this product? I think that leap is a lot, like especially, and I, and I was fortunate, you know, having worked in, you know, those, that engineering job, having worked in finance, you know, after a couple of years at Bombfell, you know, they were able to make me whole. So, you know, I was able to save up a bit, but you know, if you're coming at this from purely like, you really don't have that much in the bank. Like it's not an easy business to get into beverages in particular is not an easy business for someone who doesn't have some kind of pockets. It's a, it's an unfortunate thing that I think that, you know, I, I think folks are trying to correct, but it's just, it's a capital intensive business. And so like, that's hard. <laughs> How do you, I guess, gain the courage to bite the bullet? Uh, I'll say it's a bit of like maybe schadenfreude where, Having and like talking to enough entrepreneurs and hearing about their stories, it's like, oh, you went through this too, or you're going through this. It's like, well, at least what I'm going through isn't quite as bad as that, or like, or your story, like your your path to where you got to, like mine wasn't as ridiculous as as that. And but also, yeah, like, but you're at the other side, right? It's like you were willing, and so what that taught me was, if you're willing to go through it, there can be another side to it. You just have to be able to say to yourself. I'm willing to go through this because I think what I'm doing is worth it. And I felt like for a couple of different reasons, one, the brand itself, like I, I did have a high level of conviction that this brand needed to exist and that for whatever delusional reason, it like had to be me that launched it. And there's also an element of like, well, I think I'm good enough to do it. You know, like some people that I, it's like, you have to have, like, it's an unfortunate level of maybe arrogance, but I'm like, well, you did it. I think I might be able to do, I think I might be able to pull this off also. And I think the third element of it was I did really see, I did feel like there was another element of, you know, if you are building your own business and like, ha- like it, it really is the way to build like influence or if you wanted to go for like generational wealth or just like a certain level of like, I don't want to say independence because at some point, you know, you, and, and I, this happened, this, this just happened to me last Friday, you know, I just closed it in, uh, my first outside investing round. So like, it, it's not fully independent anymore. What I will say is like the ability to pay myself now to do what I want to do is something that you, I just couldn't do under someone else's, like on someone else's dime. And so that I will say was kind of important to me. Like I did want to have that kind of experience at least once in my life. I've, I've told everyone this, my friends, my family, my girlfriend as well, because we do, hopefully we do want to have a family. I'm like, I don't think I'm going to be a serial entrepreneur type. Like, hopefully this is the only business I ever have to launch. Like, because but I do really value wanting to have and raise a family. But I did, for, for the reasons that I just talked about, like felt like this was the one to really take that leap on. I love that. I think so many of us almost, for those of us who aren't in it yet, we almost glorify the whole idea of entrepreneurship and starting a business and all that stuff. And I think there is so much upside to it. You know, I mean, literally the reasons you just listed that personal fulfillment linked with, yeah, you obviously being able to pay yourself to do what you love. I guess what has been maybe one of the greatest failures you feel like you've had so far in this business, or maybe it's just in this entrepreneurial journey in general. Yeah. And I'll say this to that point about, I guess, lionizing the journey. I've actually been relatively, I mean, not, it's like, I have a very, very small following of like, you know, like, like, I've been pretty public about 
posting stuff on my Instagram stories, the successes and the failures. Because I do want to get out of that mindset. Because like I think when folks read something in the press about like so-and-so raised this amount of money, first off, as I'm learning now, those raises actually take like months to, to actually happen. So when we read uh, a sentence, our psychology goes to, wow, they just pulled this all together and it's all summarized in one sentence. When really they had to go like like very likely, I will say, for someone who didn't come from, you know, come, come from a lot of money, they had to go through a lot of pain to get to that point. And so, you know, I think it's I think if there is a thing to lionize, it's just making the decision and kind of making that decision daily to just do like like to just push the ball forward however way you can. And so like if any, maybe the better way to say it is like like demystify what goes on because it's really just not that pretty, and I don't think and and, and, and it just shouldn't be like it's just like, is anything ever really as pretty as, uh, like on a day to day basis? I'll say failures. A lot of it revolves around operational stuff. So like just it's things that I you know just couldn't have. I don't think I could have known going into it. And it's just like, you just have to be willing to take your licks. So, I mean, we've literally, I mean, we've had products show up to like some of our key retailers, like damaged, like in not good shape. And then they either send it back or, you know, they're like, you know, send us new product. Now, what I will say to someone who is potentially going through, through this, who wants to maybe go through this process and that I'm having to learn myself is this is actually what everyone goes through. So like, so like this idea that you're going to be perfect on day one, that every product you're going to do is great, is and or even like good, it's just really not there. And so again, like in demystifying the process, what I would kind of encourage folks who are trying to, um, who who may want to start something, is like just it's like a lot of times I even get this question it's like, where do I start? I'm like, there. Just literally start there. You've asked yourself this question, just start with that and do something about it, because that's where we all start. And so. I get the lionization. I guess it's because like not as many folks end up, you know, making the decision to 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 go and pursue it. But I think it unfairly shows that, or and unfairly like maybe like insinuates that the people who do do it have some kind of like magical, I don't know, power or whatever. And it's like really, it just starts with someone having an idea and just deciding that they want to pursue it. And like what I have found to be amazing in this industry, specifically beverages, but also when I worked at tech as well, is it it can actually be very collaborative. Like if you just if you, like if you just like out like like reach out to people, but sh- and show that you have some like a desire and you have something to bring to the table, I have found most people to be a very open book. It's actually a red flag to me if someone isn't that way because it's just not what I've experienced in this industry. And so, to anyone like listening who wants to do it, like just just start somewhere. Like literally just do something like cold email, cold link, like Twitter, like Instagram. There's so many resources. Like a tactical thing that I'll even give up right now is if you're trying to start a consumer, like a consumer brand, very likely, I think hopefully like brands that have 10,000 or fewer followers on Instagram. I think it's actually less than that. I would even say anything less than 50,000 followers. That founder is likely on their phone looking at every DM that comes in. And so if you are coming at them with like a, hey, I'm an entrepreneur looking to launch X, Y, and Z things, are you willing to talk? You know, I would find a, a, a very, there'd be a very high conversion rate on people who would take you up on that offer. But people don't do it. I'll even say this now, like, I'm almost surprised at the amount of people that I know who want to start something and how little inbound I get. But everyone that comes my way, I talk to. 
every single one because like, I get it. And so to anyone who's listening, like that's probably like one super tactical thing I'd offer up. How can we get better at putting ourselves out there? I think the number one thing, and I, I don't know if it's an age thing. So I'm 32 now and it might just be that I got to a certain age where I'm like, I just don't care. And like, I just don't give two Fs about like ego and whatnot. But like, I do think, especially now I'm, I, you know, I do have an intern on board who is, uh, she just graduated from college and like, couple of the conversations that we've had have really, tr- I've, I've really tried to empathize, like get, try, try to gain a sense of empathy for folks who are like purely in that, in, in, in Gen Z. And like, it's very tough because you learn that, like a lot of these folks have just, they've learned so much about how to create content, how about like what kind of social image to project out. And I'm, one of the things that's concerning and it's not just within that generation, but I think it because it, 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 I think it filters out to like all of us is we then lack a sense of real vulnerability to admit what we don't know. And like as I sit here in this chair, I'm like, I can confidently say there is so there are so many things I don't know, even in the field in which I am now developing an expertise, which is I guess like you know food and beverage, consumer packaged goods, or like brand building or whatnot, like. There's just so little that I know. And I think and I mean, just the starting of ad, uh, admission of what you do not know, and, and maybe the second half of that is revealing that to someone else and being super vulnerable about that is like, like what you get back in return is so rewarding. Like I have, re- I have truly like, I can't, like maybe one person, but I can't even think about it. Like there are so few instances in which I've come with that level of true, real vulnerability. Now, again, now you have to bring the right questions. I do think it's important that you don't just go around and like expect people to give you the world. I will say that like, it is important that you try to do something, but if you do, if you come from a very, really like genuine vulnerable state from a sense of authenticity, you're just going to get rewarded. Like, like legitimately almost a hundred out of a hundred times. Like, and, and if that one time it doesn't happen, then fine, like get more reps because the other 99 times will quickly erase that, that one. I feel like I've rambled on a lot of the, on a lot of, a lot of the answers to your questions and I apologize for that, but that is one that I can't stress enough. Like how can we get better at, at like getting better? It's like first admitting that we're not that good to begin with at anything. No one is that good at anything at all to start with. I love it. Oh my goodness. Sergio, we could talk all day. I'm absolutely loving this, but I'm also mindful of your time. I guess, you know, as we start to wrap up, I've got a a couple last few questions, but I guess firstly, I just, I guess, you know, over the last couple of years, you know, you've received a lot of recognition for your work. I mean, now with the business, you've been featured in a whole bunch of, of major publications, including New York Magazine, Refinery29, Bon Appetit and Vice. You know, what are the three key pieces of advice that you, that you could give to our peers that you wish you got when you were just starting out? The first one really, and it, it, it comes especially living in New York City, where there really is a level, I think if you're not careful and you get sucked into, I don't want to say like the quote unquote wrong crowds, but like where people re, like in many ways just kind of like to either like dunk on each other or try to like one up each other in like a certain piece of like knowledge or whatever. I think the first thing that I would say is these are all manifestations of insecurities. And if you can just get over that and like get more secure with asking questions from a place of vulnerability, 
you can dispel with so much of the superficialities that can oftentimes, I think, take place in entrepreneurship. Like truly, 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 most people who are acting in a certain way of like, and I, I say this because like part of why I enjoy doing, I guess, like having conversations like this is that I really do want to dispel some of what I think has been the negative culture around entrepreneurship over the last, I'll say 10 years, like the bro culture and the thing around just like raising tons of money and doing these like press circuits at like Soho house and all of that. And like, certainly like there's a time and a place for it. And it's not not like it's not fun. Like there's definitely a fun element to it. Like it certainly, but like if that is the primary driver or if that's like, what's really like getting folks like excited, that's just not, like I want to help be a voice to folks who want to get into entrepreneurship because they think they just have like a really cool idea that they want to pursue or a business that they want to build or a way to provide for their families. It's like you can be an entrepreneur for those reasons. Like it doesn't have to be because you want to be on the cover of like the New York Times. Um, and so like I do, so I think the very, like, the very first thing is that, and, and it actually kind of serves as like, I guess in and of itself is a corollary to a bigger thing, which is business is way more personal and psychological than I think people give it credit for. So when I think a lot of folks are on Twitter or reading medium blogs or whatnot, we're all looking for very tactical pieces of information to help us, you know, hack our way to the next level. And certainly, look, there there are certain tactical things or I'll say like best practices that we can do, you know, and it depends on your your business. So I won't go into all of that. But ultimately, it's like the it really is the softer stuff. And so if you as an entrepreneur can get, and I'll harp on it again, like if you can get yourself into the right mindset of how to build, of like you wanting to build the, like your business for the right reasons in the healthiest way possible, the other tactical stuff will, I think, kind of fall, like follow from that. Because I think like, especially with the psychological, that leads to people raising more money than they need to because they feel like they need to keep up with their peers. Like, like all of these things are, I find to be derivative of basically people being very insecure with themselves. And so like, yeah. And then like, I guess the last tactical part would be to the extent that you can you know, do it on your own, like with your own financing in the beginning, get those lessons early and like with your own sweat, your, your own sweat equity, it really is worth it. Like I, and, and I mean this in a tactical way. So there's an element of like, okay, I now know the business in a way that I would not have had I raised money pre-launch. But I also am able to, I think because of this knowledge, because I'm able to, I think, demonstrate a little bit more knowledge around my business, I'm able to strike better deals. Like people want to, I think, like, especially I'll say, I'll say in the beverage industry, but I think in a lot of other industries, people want to work with people who I guess have a better sense of what they're doing. And you just really are able to strike. It's like for, if you want to look at it from purely like a business standpoint, you're able to strike better deals if you know your business better. It's just that's it. And so like, I don't even know if that was like three lessons. I think they were all kind of rolled up into one, but yeah. <laughs> no, we love it. It was awesome. Amazing. So look, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you, Sandro, for the amazing work you've done and that you're doing, you know, for showing us that, you know, if we, if we can just get out of our own way and just find the thing we're passionate about or thing that we care about the most and go after that, we really can build something great for you. So we really appreciate you for that. I appreciate that. If I could add like one last thing that's, I think, guided me as a bit of like a principle, and I'm going to butcher the quote, but it's this idea that Steve Jobs put out that like everything that you see in the world was designed by a human. And I just think that like 
if you if, if if folks who are looking for ideas start with that, it's like if you go off of that, then like uh, 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 the next thought that you have is, wow, it was designed by humans, which means that there are flaws in everything, right? That means that there are improvements to be made, or like most things that were designed are were designed based on the constraints that the people of that time had, whether it's like a chair, a suitcase, uh, a beverage, like whatever. It's just, it's what people designed for that time. And so like, oftentimes I get a lot of like, how do you come up with ideas or how do you like think about stuff? And it's like, just starting with the human element, everything that has been, every business, every product that has been, every service even has been created over time has been by a human. And so it's also like, especially for people who may think, uh, cynically, there are no more good ideas in the world. I would, that, that's also my biggest counter argument to those folks is everything was created by a human and we're on, you know, the greatest technological progression that we've had over the course of our lifetimes. So if you don't think that there are more ideas to be had and to be explored, I think it's just a very cynical take on the world. That's also why I'm very excited to be an entrepreneur and, 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 and for folks who go on this path is that like, this is how we advance society. And so for anyone who needs a little nugget on like, to, 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 to like as they're on their own journey hopefully that's some bit of helpfulness some, some bit of help <laughs> of course so valuable i love it amazing so our final question is how we finish every episode of the peers to peers podcast and that is what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about the value of i mean right now i candidly what i am most passionate about what i have most conviction about just naturally is this brand and the main reason I started this brand was to bridge cultures. It's if I look at kind of where we've gone in the world, we've all really been algorithmically driven to our own tribes and to not really, and, and, and it's been made difficult to really leave them. I think people try to, but then, you know, sometimes, you know, your Facebook feed or your Twitter feed, just or your Instagram feed just really, really ropes, ropes you back in. And it's one of the greatest advances, but also like unfortunate side effects of technology has been, has been that. And so what I have felt has throughout my life has been a way to, to build bridges has been food. I mean, it's how I've learned about cultures. I think if you're in any way of foodie, and I don't want to get too deep into this because it can get, it can get frankly, kind of annoying. <laughs> but like, if you look at like a lot, a lot of folks's food is a direct representation of their culture, their, I use the word like terroir, but like basically their surroundings, where they grew up and what was around them. And I think that level, I think if you can, I think that the further I've gone into that, the more empathy I've generated for other folks. And so being able to hopefully use this brand as a platform to, you know, maybe shine that same kind of, you know, empathetic light or create that kind of cultural bridge is to me, I think really important. And it's why I've dedicated my life to it. And again, it's like the beverage I think is great. I think it's delicious. I think it's refreshing and whatnot and it's healthy, but ultimately the reason for it is to try in this crazy twisted world to start to have some kind of, you know, nuanced conversation to try to, you know, repair and, and, uh, and, and build cultures. So cool. So amazing. Oh my goodness, Sandro. Sandro, ladies and gentlemen, we have had an absolute blast. Thank you so much. Where can people learn more about you and Sanzo? Sure. Uh, our website, drinksanzo.com. That's drink S-A-N-Z-O. 
uh, com. And for any US-based listeners, especially if you're in New York City, sorry, quick plug, we just launched at Whole Foods uh, last Friday. And if you're in this space at all, you know that's a pretty that's one that we need to win. So if you want to support um, supporting us at Whole Foods is probably one of the best ways you can. So Perfect. Amazing. Well, thanks so much again, Sandro. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Peers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do which is our way of saying inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or any app where podcasts are played and leave us a review. We produce with passion and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers.